It's been a while. It's been a, it's been a bit of a year. You were the first guest of SenseBase. You were so early on that SenseBase didn't have its name yet. <laughs> and I think you were, you were still in the UK then, weren't you? Or had you got, were you in Greece? I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was, um, I was in Bournemouth. That's right. On yeah. a three-month stint, staying with my godparents. Uh, so you really, we really caught each other at the beginning of a year of moving around um, every three months for me, which has ended up miraculously with being here in Berlin and um, moving in with my girlfriend. So that's a, a, a very nice outcome to the, the itinerant phase. <laughs> <laughs> so the existential uh, challenge. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked in March. Um, what stands out for you straight off the bat as you sort of look back in the period of time that's uh, occurred since we last spoke? Well, there have been a lot of challenges. Um, I mean, as somebody who talks about yoga philosophy for a living, um, I've particularly been challenged to, I mean, dig deep. Um, if, 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 if these topics are worth talking about, then they should be able to help us face adversity of all kinds right here, right now. Yeah. A lot of what I have been doing is talking about yoga philosophy in a very abstract way. Teaching, training yoga teachers for a whole day of day. Running courses, practitioning practices over the centuries. It's all very interesting intellectually, but it's one stage removed from the people were just saying I'm freaking out <laughs> and, and I was trying to say well um, there are these ideas that we've all been talking about when we've been thinking about yoga philosophy and some of them are actually you know, related to this to you know the problem of the world is not as I would like it to be it's beyond my control and there is actually no easy way out of this conundrum and I mean, we talked a little bit in uh, in passing um, in our correspondence about the Bhagavad Gita, and that's that's a text that's set in that situation. It starts on the battlefield with a, with a warrior not wanting to go ahead with what he's tasked with doing, and I think you know for a lot of people this past twelve months has been a bit like that. You find yourself in some not particularly uh, desirable set of circumstances with uh, no no apparently good outcome in sight, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> somehow got to make some progress with it all and, 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 and you know not just sort of collapse on the couch and uh, fill yourself with whatever the chosen poison is <laughs> and uh, you know I think I think in a way as I say that was a challenge for me because I, I was feeling a bit that way myself I didn't know whether I'd be able to make a living a lot of what I do is um, you know zero hours contracts <laughs> classic um, gig economy work and uh, you know the gigs could very easily all have dried up so I felt this need to be online all the time talking all the time trying to make sure there were still things to do all the things I had been planning like going on a yoga retreat with a group to Portugal obviously went out the window mm. so I guess I had to you know figure out for myself what it was I was going to focus on that, that coincided with work to bring out a book that I've been writing for the past couple of years um, which is about the yoga philosophy that I've been talking about and, and also the history of yoga and 
I guess the two things started to just sort of combine my life and yoga philosophy and <laughs> talking about yoga philosophy for a living became philosophizing as a way of life in order to figure out, you know, my own existential circumstances and you know, how, to, how to keep going in, in the midst of it all. You know, I live by myself in the middle of nowhere. It's been quite isolating and yet I've been glued to a screen with my, my forehead increasingly merging with the webcam. So it's, uh, it's been a challenge from that point of view as well to sort of step back and say enough tech, <laughs> even if that is a means of connection. So lots been going on. How about you? Yeah, that's, that's clicking a lot with um, aspects of my last year as well. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, before, I, before I share about the isolation, are you in the countryside or like where are you? Yeah, I'm northwest of Oxford, so it's uh, mm. technically what's known as the Cotswolds, although that, that conjures up for other people you know, very pretty little cottages and very rich celebrities, and uh, there's, there's not so many of those where I am, kind of mm. on a windswept field on which some houses have been built, but um, it's peaceful and there's lots of nature around, and it's, a, it's been a good place to be locked down from that point of view. Mm. Um, there's a little village shop uh, and not a lot else, <laughs> so... Uh, get to spend some time you know communing with 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 my surroundings um, and the basics are right here on the doorstep so can survive without having to go anywhere but otherwise it's the kind of place where you've got to get in the car or uh, you know there's, there's maybe one or two buses <laughs> it's not not very well plugged in like being in central london or new york two places i've been recently living so there's an adjustment suddenly i got used to coming here as a a bolt hole in between doing other things it's just mm. a great place to hole up and write or to prepare to teach uh, workshops or retreats and yeah suddenly that's that's all there was <laughs> so it was, a, it was an adjustment definitely wow yeah i was sort of feeling into that vibe of the the country roads with little bus stops on them and just absolute quiet and desertion um and that was lovely in March, you know, things really did shut down for a couple of months at the end of March and, and you know, there were just no cars on the roads. You could walk down the middle of what, what's ostensibly, you know, sort of a main road around here and there was, there was nothing on it. You know, now it's, we're technically locked down again, but, uh, you know, a lot of people out and about doing stuff all the time. And uh, I kind of miss those early days of nobody knew what was happening. People were kind of freaking out and yet, you know, we were all making sense of it. This, collective project of trying mm. to make sense of things has, has taken some fascinating twists as well over, <laughs> over the past 12 months. A, a lot of strange sense-making gone on in relation to the virus and the you know, sort of political circumstances and what may or may not be done around those. And uh, you know, the yoga teacher world has been very caught up in delusional fantasies, to be quite honest, <laughs> QAnon, et cetera. And uh, it's been fascinating to watch that and uh, also to, 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 to watch people try to take it on and, and see how you know, very how very difficult it is to to argue with conspiracy theories they they just sort of you know they, they grow to accommodate the challenge as part of the problem and uh, yeah, no amount of disproving them will will, will work people uh, people get ever more insulated in this bubble of self-confirming bias Uh, yeah in that with familiarity thinking yeah um i've certainly sat in a few of those little corners at times in my life thinking yeah i know i know the secrets of the universe <laughs> i don't think the real secrets of the universe are, are that secret they're, they're almost blindingly obvious <laughs> we just do our best to avoid yeah 
seeing them in the face. Something about um, rediscovering the local was really salient for me at the beginning. And it felt like, although I, although during that year I had kind of been un, I was basically on exodus or pilgrimage or something from, from my experience and not being in a home home that I was situated in and sort of moving around. And there was something about rediscovering just like where I am. When I was in Bournemouth, that meant going onto a local golf course, which had a bit of a forest in the middle of it. And I would just go out and dwell in there at great length. Um, and then I managed to get out to Greece sort of not long after we spoke and hide out in my parents' flat. Um, nice. So a lot of climbing up on hills and looking out into the horizon and um, yeah, the absence of airplanes and everything really contributed to that. And it was the weird, also a weird experience to be sort of plugged into like, you know, alternative sense-making world and um in that in that moment in those initial weeks where everybody was losing their minds and my parents were like somehow mustering up like world war ii cultural memories and like buying all like bags and loads and loads of flour and porridge oats and stuff um it felt like these skills of um these more sort of preparatory skills, I guess, and these sense-making networks seemed to be much more ahead of the game um, of what was coming. And I, I definitely found the demand for like wisdom <laughs> time and time again during that period of just like, you know, intense, stressful times in the flat with my parents or um, after that, since coming here to Berlin, just really being in a continuous flow of change, it's felt like, um, thankfully with a directionality of healing, which has been awesome, but certainly the process of changing a pattern seems to be to repeat it again and again and be given opportunities to face the scenario you know in which you can then at some late stage perceive it differently and like make a move that was novel that you didn't know was possible and suddenly you've stepped into a new life in doing that um very good way of putting it is a story one of my teachers likes to tell which is you know some sort of hodgepodge of eastern <laughs> eastern wisdom stories i guess um of uh, walking along a road and falling into a pothole and a uh, guy does this again and again and again until he realizes that it's possible to walk around the pothole and uh, you know, i haven't told it with all of the drama that one could string it out with but uh, effectively it's that simple you know we keep walking into a hole without realizing that there's you know sort of a, a perimeter to the hole and we don't have to yeah, fall over the edge of it we could skirt it instead um, but often it's just, there's nothing other than the path and we're walking the path and we keep falling in the hole <laughs> instead of realizing that you know if we just broadened our perspective there's 
something past the hole. And uh, it's, it's very hard to see that sometimes if we, we, you know, our minds conditioned in grooves. So and to make sense of reality, I think we go mad if we, <laughs> we weren't filtering out most of the information available to us. Otherwise, it'd be like one continual psychedelic meltdown. <laughs> yeah there's something in that about like what are those ways of being that can free up this space and movement and obviously you know yoga's gonna come up but i've i've been sort of exploring uh a broader notion of this the name of which my girlfriend came up with is a meta practitioner and the idea behind that was um, what, what is the way of being that sort of sits in relationship to a multiplicity of different practices with an expanded notion of what practice is to include um, not just meditation and yoga, but music, um, dance, walking in nature, um, you know, bits and bobs from circling and authentic relating and how you communicate and how you approach sex and everything. Um, and more, all of which seems to serve to create more space for, so I don't know, like perceiving potential in the, in the sort of field of possibility that we we live in um and you've just written a book i believe it's called the truth of yoga i might be wrong yes, is, is that correct that's correct yeah there it is it's an, uh, not an unambitious title um yeah it's not a very thick book either so you know there's a <laughs> there's a lot one could say about yoga and certainly about truth and uh, it's impossible to condense it all into a little book like that but i've, I've had a go at trying to summarize some ideas um and I suppose, you know, the truth of yoga is we're not what we think. Um, and what we think is often the enemy of actually knowing stuff <laughs> because you know, the mind likes to parcel things up into packages that are very familiar and then just sort of rearrange them in preconceived order. Um, the patterns we were talking about. So the mind just sort of goes around in grooves and yoga as traditionally conceived was, was a way of stepping outside of that and ultimately outside of conventional existence and using techniques of training the mind and the body um, so that it would yeah, ultimately be possible to ignore both <laughs> or at least not have them make you know unanswerable demands on us um, and obviously a lot of that gets lost in the way that yoga and meditation are presented today especially you know, with the sort of I'm, I was going to say dumbing down it doesn't need to be dumbed down but yeah, the, the, the sort of distillation of, of Buddhist meditation wisdom into, into something like an eight-week mindfulness course that often is just about, you know, feeling a little bit more comfortable in one's own skin, a little bit more able to, to tolerate some of the stresses of life. But then obviously that can make it much easier to be required to remain within the structures that are really stressful. <laughs> and um, I think originally these teachings were designed to rip up all structures completely <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, ultimately, that leads in yeah, to a phase of total renunciation of, 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 of conventional life, which is not what most of us are looking for. So I've tried to write about the historical evolution from 
that birthplace of these ideas to where we are now and obviously therefore we're watering these things down in some way or form inevitably inevitably by not going all the way as it were but um mm. you know, all the way is quite austere and uh i think not very compatible with 21st century lifestyles and i think it's possible to maintain some connection to the spirit of that project uh, in a way that is a little bit more householder friendly <laughs> rather than yeah, for the cave dweller <laughs> so i think I, i've just been trying to point through writing the book to 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 the common threads um so that people can find their own way really of mixing their own cocktail of of, of these bits and pieces from tradition that uh, you know really speak to us still now but uh, it's impossible really to to take a text from 2000 years ago and feel this is my blueprint for living because the people it was written for are you know, living a very different life and uh, we can't really approach that <laughs> in any meaningful way unless unless we do you know step right back from it's not just a question of not being online it's you know not really being involved with relationships and that's the difference you know i think i think um most people who practice yoga and meditation now are trying to make it you know, as you were describing part of a way of relating not just to the moment and to ourselves but to each other and society as you know as productively as possible and that's not really described in these old texts in fact it's discouraged by most ancient yoga teachers um, that's the source of the, the problem to be involved with society and each other you know the yoga sutra of patanjali is really clear it says yeah, you should practice meditation on the body uh, from the point of view of seeing how it can never be clean therefore it's disgusting you should therefore desire no contact with anybody else's body and you should aspire to give up your own um which is yeah, that's pretty hardcore <laughs> yeah back to back to the modern era <laughs> <laughs> well to just riff riff on that a little bit um there's such an interesting, there's a number of interesting sort of dialectics or tensions it sounds like you hold uh, in the book or in your relationship to these ideas. Um, one of those is, and something that I also noticed when I read the Gita, um, the Bhagavad Gita, was that sort of, there was definitely a tone coming through of emphasis on self-control and self-restraint um which was interesting um and then there's also a sort of tension like in your articulation of yoga and meditation you really allude to something much more radical um and in reading the gita i get a sense of the depth of of what that is um and yeah, you very somehow you seem to be putting forward something very radical, but in a way that feels very calm and reasonable. <laughs> and um, I don't know if I uh, left the book in the kitchen. Anyway, um, I was struck by the amount of similarities, I guess, for me between reading the Gita and my sort of interpretation of the Jesus Christ story um, seemed to be a lot of correspondence in the character of Krishna as kind of the 
the the god self embodied in 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 form um yeah there was there was so much there that felt to me like a sort of similar message i think you're right and uh it's uh it's a really striking archetype and I think in some ways that also struck uh, early British colonialists when they started looking at you know, these mm. ancient Indian texts. Um, the Gita was one of the first texts, may even actually have been the first if I'm uh, scratching away in the bowels of my memory, but I think the late 18th century, the Gita was first translated into English. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was clearly identified as sort of the Hindu Bible from that point of view it's it seemed very familiar there is you know sort of God who descends to earth in this embodied form and yet is somehow beyond the world and yet the Gita makes it all you know very psychedelic as well I mean literally Krishna is the world <laughs> sort of pulsating in everything and reveals himself in the 11th chapter of the Gita in this really trippy um a psychedelic freak out to 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 Arjuna who, who's on his knees begging him to stop and, and that's that's a you know, scene that was conjured up into the mind of uh, Robert Hopp Oppenheimer watching the test of the first nuclear bomb and uh, sort of imagining this this kind of embodiment of, of what Krishna calls time really but you know I am become death was the way that Oppenheimer brought it to mind um this sort of you know, immense om omnipotent power to 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 destroy everything and to create it and just to be that's what time is you know eats everything up and it's what confuses us this idea that we can somehow step outside of it this whole project of planning i mean i'm yeah, caught up in this a lot myself that's just the nature of life and I'm, I'm a bit that way but um there is only now <laughs> everything else is you know tomorrow and yesterday and doesn't exist until it's now so all the time that we're projecting forwards or backwards, we're not in the moment and time's eating up our life. There really is only this, this moment that we're in and we can make the most of it. We can plan about things to do in the next moment. But so Krishna is sort of somehow standing outside of time. He is time. And the message is that there's a way to you know, become him uh, almost depending on how you read the Gita. And that's, you know, that's, that's a lot more cosmic than, than, certainly what's put into the uh, the conventional reading of the new testament <laughs> yeah you could although in some ways you know the kingdom of heaven is within and you know all those messages are there and a lot of indian teachers yogananda in his autobiography of the uh, of a yogi he goes goes sort of through a lot of indian you know, very mystical teachings and draws parallels with passages from the bible in order mm. to show americans that, that there are these connections and there is something that cosmic buried away in Christian tradition and Christian mystics who obviously found their own way to to that project but you know, it seems to have been stamped on by the church because you know, institutions certainly in the western world are not very keen on the kind of person that Christ seems to have been you know sort of anarchist sadhu wandering around stirring people up with <laughs> yeah inspiring messages um, that's not not very conducive to people controlling things uh, which is generally what religions like to do Yes, yes, I'm feeling the Daniel Simpson classic flavor now sort of coming through. <laughs> there was something very, yeah, sort of iconic going on in our first call that, I don't know, I think both of our English heritage maybe is part of the, the degree of resonance about this. Um, yes, death, the destroyer of worlds and um 
revealing himself to Arjuna, there's this scene in which he uh, it's described as envisioning like a thousand rising suns or 10,000 rising suns. Um, and that was the one that really like lit me up, like lit up my third eye, like <laughs> sort of popped me briefly into a, a possibility space, which is sort of the space that I imagined to be there based on accounts of DMT trips that people have um anyway that's a bit of a sidetrack <laughs> i don't know if it is i mean that brings us actually back to where we were before i went down the, the rabbit warren of yoga history i mean you were talking about sort of walking around with this sense of, of, of possibility and and that that's always there and i guess that was what i was alluding to with this 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 description of the problem of time <laughs> and uh mm. in, in some ways Time seems to suggest possibility. This planning forwards in, 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 into 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 projects, and you know, I mean, writing my book was about that. I had to, I had to structure it in that way, otherwise I wouldn't have ever got it written. I would have drifted off with my propensity to be distracted into hundred and one other projects. But uh, at the same time, this this projection forwards robs us sometimes of possibility because we, we, we miss what's actually there <laughs> so we get we're back into the single-minded focus and the inability to see past the pothole instead you know it's very easy to get and i see it you know in my own mindset i mean i, I guess one thing that comes up when you, you're sort of i guess struck by certain um resonances in, in in what i say is you know i i, I tend to be motivated by extremes in in my life i've gone from one extreme to another and I've, as I've got older, found a way of integrating to the two extremes and spending most of my time between them rather than being pulled to one or the other. But um, I do tend to have this sort of vision that's always looking to the extremes and trying to trying to marry them somehow. So whether it's the extreme of the intensity of ancient yoga practice and the sort of extreme of you know, modern hyper-connected techno lifestyles and trying to find some way to, 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 to marry them. Um, and I think in the end, the real world is all about beyond this, this, this sort of tension between anything. It's, it's just, it just is, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, doesn't need to be dissected into that. The potential is to just be in it. Um, and that's where the you know, unlimited possibilities are. As soon as one's pulled into sort of this, this binary of this or that, and then trying to find the midpoint, then, then it sort of flattened this thing that's got so many dimensions and put it into this sort of very linear plane. Uh, and I notice that tendency in myself and it pulls me in unhelpful directions. And I find the most productive things happen when I don't even notice that they're there. They just sort of arise and it's like a no brainer, but the extent to which I'm planning and trying to balance the extremes is the extent to which I miss those opportunities. So um, I'm trying in this moment when I've been very busy to, especially over this last year, to still try and <laughs> leave a bit of space for possibility to bubble up and surprise me. And life's very boring unless it surprises <laughs> us, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, the feeling of um, like, I think everybody experiences possibility to varying degrees in their lives. But then there's this, I think there's a landscape of like possibility that alludes to more possibility or something like a sort of uh, feedback loop 
sort of relationship where leaning into one possibility opens up more possibilities or something like that. Um, and a lot of, you know, when I, a lot of what I've been learning about since we last spoke in March 2020 was, has been this process of uh, dialectic and the possibility that can arise from that of like a dialogos of a kind of flow state um, where we don't actually know what's going on. Um, and I have experienced myself go through that transition since I came into the call of like for a period of time, there's sort of like the narrative of my idea of who you are in my head and what we probably talk about and what would be relevant to this. And then at some point, I'm no longer able to hold on to any of that. And I'm just tracking and being with you and trusting that when you finish speaking that the next thing's gonna come and sort of correspond with what came before. And so it's a real um, participating with not knowing somehow that you can find in this. And I feel in the, in the sort of life, the, the life, the conversation of your life between these extremes um, is somewhere, somewhere in between that particular tension is the space that is the possibility space of growth, uh, somewhere between narrative and experience, dropping, dropping into the body and um, dropping out of future projection and into the present and then popping back into planning, thinking, narrative, constructing, model building mode, and then popping back into the liquid. And that popping in and out seems to be affording of more flow. And that I think is something to do with the union of yoga. I mean, I think the word that you identified um, that sort of the Gita <laughs> suggested to you, um, which is very strongly apparent in early teachings on yoga of restraint, the very important one. And um, it's, it's the downside of yoga. And yet it's also the source of its power. Um, this attempt to discipline ourselves and get everything under control. And all of the early teachings in yoga, I mean, the first ever definition of yoga in a text is as restraint of the mind and the senses. And Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra talks about stilling the movements of the mind, basically get, getting it all under control. Um, and that's sort of the enemy of, of this flow state. And, and yogis were interested in this flow state in that sense, whereas the Gita was. The Gita was trying to say, how can you combine restraint with action? How can you actually live in the world without all of these mental projections getting in the way of, of productive activity? And the context of the story obviously is designed to put this philosophy forward um there's, there's there's somebody who has an unpleasant task to do and he refuses to do it and he somehow needs to get out of his own way and get on with it <laughs> and uh, that leads to all sorts of interesting questions anyway because basically the text turns into you know 18 chapters of war propaganda the the aim is for krishna to persuade arjuna to pick up his weapons and go into battle and kill his relatives um 
So that's, you know, <laughs> it's a fairly funky story. Uh, and yet that's, you know, the teaching him the highest wisdom. Um, so, you know, there's that complication encountering it in the 21st century, often from yeah, a lot of people come to yoga with a fairly sort of committed idea of themselves as progressive minded or against war or certainly, you know, against harming and to find that this is a, a text about, about battle and that the ultimate sort of expression of yoga wisdom is, is to, to allow yourself to commit righteous harm. Uh, it's a bit, bit challenging and, and yeah, maybe better we put that one aside just for now, but from the point of view of learning how to act, this, this ability to bring the clarity that comes from the restraint into a dynamic interrelationship with other things, other beings, other situations, that's where yoga gets interesting for me. And that's, I suppose, what I'm trying to open myself up to more and have had to through the teaching I've been doing. And I used to teach more about, you know, what yoga is in these old texts. And I always found the Bhagavad Gita for the reasons I've just articulated, plus the God thing, a little bit difficult to, to integrate. And suddenly this year, it's, it's become my favorite text. <laughs> it's, it, mm. seems to, it seems to talk about you know, this challenge of how to be a yogi and yet live in the world. Um, and the only real way to do it is to stop being hung up on this endless project of, of self-satisfaction, trying to get all the things we want, realizing that actually most of that's beyond our control. And that's what sort of frees up the mind to become a helpful tool uh, rather than the master of the show. Um, and my mind likes to try and plan and arrange. And if I can get everything organized well enough, then nothing will go wrong. And then immediately reality confounds me. And you know, the case of my book being an immediate example, um, it's got an American publisher. It came out as planned on January the 5th in America. Um, and it's still unavailable in the UK, thanks to Brexit snarling up the ports and a load of books that were imported back in you know, late, late last year, supposed to be here in good time, just didn't get here. So they've started to go out. People had pre-ordered. They're getting their books. And, you know, part of me was freaking out. I want to arrange something different. And can't. It's totally beyond my control. And it's this year has been good for that sort of reminder. Many, many things that, sure, you can get pissed off, but that's not going to help. Um, and it's good just to remember that no amount of planning or preparation counts, <laughs> really. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't make the outcome any more likely to be the one that we want. And for a, a, a very sort of analytically Germanic type of mind <laughs> as the one I have, that's, that's, that's a confronting message. It's, it, it likes to imagine that it can put in a lot of investment in systematization that will be flawless and engineer the right outcome. And it might make things more likely, but it, you know, right now in this moment, the odds remain 50-50, absolutely no way of knowing. Uh, it might work out, might not. And uh, I, think, I think the possibility of accepting that makes it much easier just to do stuff. You know, do a bit of planning, do a bit of preparation, it's all worth it. But you know, as soon as we're hung up on, will I get what I want, then game over from the point of view of keeping the flow going because we get then unhappy when things don't go our way or you know the things things arrive that we didn't didn't ever want or expect and that's that's what the buddha was always trying to say you know, that's the whole problem of life is very simple is you know, things we don't want happen and we don't get what we want and as long as we're caught up in that game we'll be miserable yeah a deeply um buddhist message there i felt uh reflecting back on it and that's what the gita does really it takes the buddha's teachings combines them with yoga and turns it into this is what people who live in the world can do 
and it's it's a really i mean from a sort of historical critical analytical perspective it's a very skillful act of cultural appropriation in that sense <laughs> it takes all the popular teachings that were big you know, bestsellers in mm -hmm. 2000 years ago in india and it sort of remixes them into this package that allows brahmin priests to carry on sitting sitting around you know being in charge of things um it's yeah, part of what it does politically i mean it, it shores up the caste system by saying everyone should do their duty and act without attachment to results and you shouldn't wish to be somebody else or to have their life you should just do your thing and that's that's your job and so this metaphor of the soldier doing what he needs to do because he's born into that is the one for you know, you know don't try and change your social status <laughs> and uh, that's also quite challenging to take on board yoga is political i mean it's always been involved with some sort of social context and it's impossible to get away from that but then i guess that to me in this last year has led me to wonder especially as people have been coming and asking in these sort of workshops that i've been running online what does yoga say about what to do right now and um i found myself increasingly not wanting to answer <laughs> i don't think there is an answer my, my answer is almost always these days it's up to us um yeah do what you think's right but try and at first just see it for what it is uh, and it's very hard to see the world as it is and i think that's what these practices help us to do just to try and see a bit more clearly see how much baggage we're bringing into the situation that stops us seeing it clearly sometimes psychedelics are a much more effective way of doing that because they just cut through or you can't maintain the illusion as they're dripping through your fingers <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and absolutely, in in certain ways, um, though I would say, with um, over the longer track of experience with psychedelics and cannabis and other things, um, the capacity to drop in seems to be loosened and require less um, less of those catalysts, um, and one of the exciting things I started doing since we last spoke was I started a meditation um, series called Dropping In and just sort of uh, spawn like not scripted just sort of meditating myself to telling my own lullaby of dropping in and exploring but doing it aloud um, and I think there's something this well there's not something there's everything in what's present and not revealed um and something that i really wanted to appreciate about you and what you said was you said the gita the gita like is grounded in the reality of ex experience like you're here you're in the situation what do you do and it's also a conversation which I think is also important. It's like the conversational nature of life. Um, but then you shifted to talking about your own experience, which you also do. And that is another, like you're sort of mirroring that move almost by showing people like, it's not just about the book or the script or the doctrine. It's about what, to bring it back to your own experience. Um, and that's sort of what I look for in, uh, in a, in a teacher and a wise person in 
in the kind of uh, being, the kind of meta practitioner that I described, like what is the kind of personing and world being that can respond to this context now and be best responsive to it. I think it's someone who can make that move uh, of dropping into, into the present and um, constantly moving, moving between the narratives and experiences and, and holding the conversation in themselves and then understanding that that sort of um, scales outward Something about scaling, I would love to, I don't know if that resonates for you, but I've been thinking a lot about branching patterns in nature um, over the course of the last year and sort of drawing on those to inform my thought. And I think there's something perhaps of spiritual value in there in, in respect that these branching patterns, you know, are in our bodies and in our minds and the actual tissue, but then trees and rivers and, um, yeah, I wonder if that's sort of, there's something visually metaphorically reflective coming back to the experience of nature that then is, is, is leading us back to that participation with where, you know, sort of the, the stack of chakra things are in alignment. Well, I think one of the most interesting things that's yeah, struck me in my experience with yoga was I began you know, a very physical approach. Uh, I used to take Iyengar yoga classes, very obsessed with where you put your body, BKS Iyengar in his lifetime used to say that uh, alignment is enlightenment, as if you could just sort of get everything perfectly arranged and uh that would just somehow join everything up light light you up like a christmas tree and there, there'd be nothing left to do and i once saw him teaching in china and uh, he had a, a metaphor that he liked to reach for and he was sort of on this you know this kind of retirement tour last one song international trip 2011 stood up on a stage held up a leaf and he was trying to say you know this leaf is perfect symmetry nature produces this beautiful symmetry yeah, he was standing there in tadasana yeah, standing up straight arms by the sides and he was getting all of these senior teachers some of whom he'd studied with him for 40 years and asking them to demonstrate and there were a thousand chinese in this sports hall and there's sort of on big screens being videoed and he just kept picking holes in all of these students postures saying you know you're not perfectly aligned blah 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 and, and you know the more the more i sort of reflected on this I thought well first of all I've never seen a leaf in nature which is absolutely uniformly balanced from one side to the other um, and uh, yeah and secondly I mean here's BKS Iyengar standing in Tadasana and if you look very closely you know one of his hands is a little bit out of alignment and there's all sorts of different shapes that go mm. on in there the two sides of the body are not the same that's just that's just the nature of things and he's got a kink in his wrist and I remember being told off by an Iyengar teacher in a room with that on the wall once you know get your wrist straightened out and i said but he's not doing it he is <laughs> and i said look at it <laughs> black is white war is peace ignorance is strength um and i don't know i think i think nature is a great reminder of, of the impossibility of this project to which i've always been drawn you know, trying to think one's way to, to the answer <laughs> 
thinking is very helpful, but one has to feel. And uh, I think in the moment when it really comes down to that, this dropping in, I really like is the body has a lot of wisdom in it. A lot, a, 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 a lot of intellectual processing takes place there. I mean, this phrase we have gut instinct is often sort of ridiculed as folk wisdom, but I think the body knows a lot more than the mind a lot of the time. Um, and if we can listen to it, then the mind can be very, you know, helpful way of processing that and figuring out what to do. It's not like the, the gut in, is always right. It just it just has a feeling and that needs interpreting. But uh, I know that the times that I've ignored those feelings have generally led me into situations that I've had to reflect uh, I could have avoided because I knew before I started where this was leading. Um, and all these ideas I have in my mind often just don't come true. So the, the mind's no better a guide anyway. So it's, uh, mm. it's something much subtler uh, in relating to the moment that, that, that can give us pointers. And ultimately that's, that's what the Gita is really trying to provide us really. It's this blueprint for, for, for figuring out what to do. Uh, and there isn't a fixed answer. And at the very end of it, uh, sort of 15 verses from the end, Krishna tells Arjuna, I've told you all this stuff and now it's up to you. You must reflect on everything I've said and then act as you see fit. And so, although in the end Arjuna says, I'll do as you command, <laughs> there is still this, this option held up that it's completely up to us to figure it all out. And there is no right answer. There is the, there's only just being in the moment and seeing what we're called to do and actually being able to hear it. I think that's that's the thing that it's hard to actually hear and you, you're observing that talking about you know, there's all this potential out there but are we actually even open to it are we alert alert enough to it in fact it's almost not being alert you know the radar only kicks in when things are quieter and subtler then there's all mm. sorts of things that can come alive and otherwise we're sort of there's this white noise that makes it impossible for any signals to come in there's something you this is when you started out really alluding to mind as being something that's not in the brain but in the brain and the body and also in participation with with the outside the inside and out and all of it is you know minding for me mind is this whole um experience and this experience is quite rich um you know if I felt in the course of speaking myself sort of dropping in a little bit more and, you know, sort of the thickness and volume of the space seems to grow um, as we participate more easily with it, I guess. Um, and one thing that I've wanted to bring today was a, a just a reflection about my own yoga practice which has really i've noticed in the past six months sort of i went through this period of being really alienated from it because i had thought that it was going to get me through my traumatic relationship that i was in and actually it was more of a coping mechanism at the time um and what I've been discovering is there's many ways to do yoga. <laughs> and sometimes I can get down and I'm just going through the motions and it's the idea of it. Mm. And then a couple of weeks will pass and, you know, I've picked up something 
emotionally that I'm not aware of that hasn't been revealed. Nice. Smoke a joint with my girlfriend, perhaps, and then getting down on the mat and really like not just stretching, but like, you know, groaning and like really feeling into using it, you know, almost tantrically to get into the emotions in the body. And that has been, you know, I've found myself crying after doing that recently. And so it's really like yoga when the heart is in it seems to be where my orientation is now. Um, and with the heart being a sort of participation in the body and mm. uh, sort of allowing pain to come out in yoga and that sort of thing. Sounds very powerful. And in some ways, uh, a very personal thing that, that, that ultimately can't be taught. It can only be perceived. I mean, some guidelines from what you were saying could be drawn up and the systematizing brain starts to think, how would I teach a class that way? But um, in the end, it's it, all, all that can really be said is you know, there's, there's an invitation, as you said, to feel more deeply into what's there. And um, sometimes people do try to teach yoga in this way in the group setting now, and it basically ends up being reduced to, you know, just sort of make whatever shape you feel like and see how that feels. And in the end, you know, I don't find that a very helpful thing to go to a room to have somebody else talk to me about. It's, it's also very hard to do in a productive way with other people and in a group setting when there is how much the teacher pretends otherwise, still some structure and you've got to be out the room in 60 minutes, etc. Mm. So uh, I think ultimately yoga was never meant to be taught in this uh, on a mat, in, in, in groups, in a class sequenced for a fixed period of time for money kind of a way. That's that's how it evolved in the 20th century. It was, it was always something very different. And I mean, you use the word tantric. Uh, I mean, I think the whole philosophy of tantra, which often you know, today gets associated particularly with just sort of feeling good in the body. It was like all the earlier traditions, a way of going beyond the body, but it was to go beyond the body through the body without rejecting the body. And seeing therefore that, you know, the ultimate wisdom could be attained through the body, but obviously that's, it's a more, um, yeah, the path like the razor's edge is a metaphor that's often used um, in these teachings. It's just, you know, very narrow, very steep-sided, very hard to stay on um, because if ultimately the challenge is to go beyond this sort of identification with getting satisfied through stuff <laughs> and trying to push away the stuff we don't like, the, 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 the use of physical sensation and, and even ultimately things that you know, make us feel really good to, to try and be part of that project can easily lead us astray into just you know, using it as you know, a way of getting pleasure and there's no harm in pleasure but unless unless we're able to be very skilled with it that just keeps us spinning around the i want more cycle <laughs> and so uh tantra is a really interesting tool if if i think uh seen in this more like bhagavad-gita's message i mean bhagavad-gita in that 11th chapter is really teaching a tantric philosophy of you know the divine is in everything <laughs> and um therefore everything is a portal to it uh, and and the inherent wisdom of, of of the omniscient being is therefore also in all of it including every cell of the body um so we can tap into that and uh, it does sound very rich and uh, i think another thing that comes to mind i mean I 
tried to talk about this a bit in my book, but inevitably I mean, I've written this book. It's it's short, as I was saying, and it's made up of like a hundred very short chapters. They're like little blogs, 500 words. So I take each theme as influenced some aspect of yoga history and philosophy. And they're like elements that have been combined into different compounds at different times. And one of those elements is referred to as chakras and that's part of tantric philosophy. And strictly speaking, you know, they don't exist. You know, there's, you can't cut open a corpse and find a spinning wheel with you know, little Sanskrit syllables inside lotus petals floating around at various locations. So they were originally meant to be imagined. They were designed in the earliest tantric texts as um, blueprints for visualization practice. But the problem is that as soon as you start saying that in the modern era, people assume that, well, that, that's debunked them. <laughs> And that, that only really happens if we assume a separation between mind and body. Like they have to either exist in the body that we can cut open or they're an invention of the mind. But what if the mind is the body, <laughs> as we've been talking about? Then they're real, but in a different kind of a way. They're, 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 they're real in the sense of an intentionality makes them manifest and then an understanding takes place. So I often think that's, that's actually what yoga practice is, what you just described bringing this sort of the container is created in which a particular engagement with being can take place and it's only through the discipline of doing it that that happens and and yet it can be as unstructured as, as you were describing and as, as sort of free-flowing as allowing it to direct itself from what's felt um, and yet there's still a structure and a discipline involved in und undertaking that otherwise it would just be you smoke the joint and you lie on the couch and sort of stuff comes and goes <laughs> and there's something about yoga that isn't just stuff comes and goes it's a container within which with, within which what one within which one can watch what comes and goes and uh, therefore become a little less caught up in the coming and going and a bit wiser as a result of watching the coming and going and yet not having to stand back and watch still able to participate i think that's that's the dichotomy that i often used to find myself caught up in was Surely we're either just living and you know, embroiled in stuff and it has all these effects on us, or we're totally standing back and watching. And, and the yoga tradition has mainly been about standing back and watching and the Gita talks about getting involved, but then ultimately, as I say, sort of has its own master plan, doesn't leave much space for the standing back and watching and inventing your own. Although as a 21st century reader, that's, that's what we'll do. But still, I think, I think that's where the juice is, is somehow being able to watch while doing. Thank you, Daniel. I've really enjoyed this. I know you've got to jump off uh, any moment now, but yeah, beautiful elucidation of the, the musicality of yoga there, I think. Um, and thank you, thank you for inspiring it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I'm amazed an hour has gone by. It's, uh, yeah, it's been, a, been a pleasure to, to share ideas. Yes, and would love to, you know, maybe in six months, maybe it'll be next year, maybe we'll keep this going for a long time, but it's really nice to check in and um, yes, Truth of Yoga by Daniel Simpson, check it out, it'll be linked in the info below. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thank you, Jacob, yeah, take care, all the best with everything and I look forward to next time. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you.